have you get out your Bibles and open them up to James chapter four. Um, we're going to finish, uh, we're going to finish chapter four and we're going to look at, um, the first 11 verses of, of chapter five last week. If you remember our, um, James, the big idea was that our internal wars are the, are, are what cause our external wars, our, our sinful passions and pleasures are, are the things that cause us to fight with our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and, and rebel pridefully against God as we elevate ourselves over his commands and, and we build friendships with the world and, be, and, and um, embrace the devil's temptations. In today's passage, James is going to call out the sins of the wealthy and challenge uh, his readers then to endure suffering with patience as they wait for the Lord's return. Now, the big, the big issue today that we want to really highlight in this passage is the sovereignty and goodness of God, the sovereignty of God. Maybe you've heard that word. Maybe you haven't really um, thought about what it means. It's this supreme and independent power and authority. Sovereignty, the supreme and independent power and authority. We like to pretend like we have it, um, and we attempt to, to exert that in our lives over all things, but we fail in, in many areas. And, um, and today we're going we're gonna to look at the actual sovereignty of God over all things. We like to pretend we have it. God really does have it, and we're going to see why um, this morning. So it's a longer passage, so I won't read all of it at the beginning. I want to pray. And then um, we'll just work our way through it together. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for an, another day of uh, reveling in the glory of Christ. We thank you for another day that we can gather together both physically and uh, in the use of, of the gift of technology uh, to open the word together, to hear from the Lord through your word. And Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things here, and that we would um, be hearers and doers of this word, that we would be obedient to what you've commanded us through it, that we would receive the words of your servant James with a humble heart, and that we would eagerly seek to follow it in obedience to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um. Have you ever felt like people with all the money have all the power? Have you ever felt like the, these, there, there are people that um, ha have all the money and all the power and they abuse that power and they abuse people who don't? Have you ever in your mind been critical of them and thought you could probably do better than, than they did if you had their money and power, right? We compare ourselves to others all the time. And when we do that, it's easy to convince ourselves that we're superior to someone with whom we find fault. Because let's face it, we can find fault in someone, right? We, we can find a fault somewhere in someone. But when we compare ourselves to God, in whom there is no fault, it takes a lot of pride for us to convince ourselves that we are superior to him. And yet the way we live our lives often reveals who we believe is ultimately sovereign and in some cases in our lives, the answer is not God, it's us. At the end of last week's passage, James said that those who criticize and judge others are criticizing and judging the law. And, and if in doing that, they're criticizing and judging the one who gave the law, which is God. And so in James 
he says, there is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So in other words, James is like, listen, who are you compared to God, right? And, 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 um, and then we're going to get into the, today's passage, and we're going to kind of keep that in, in our mind frame today, because when we're critical of God and his commands, we're comparing ourselves to God. We're comparing ourselves to God, and we're rejecting his sovereignty and replacing it with our own. And, and we do that for typically two reasons, one of two reasons. One, because we don't actually believe that he's sovereign. Or two, we don't believe that he's good. We disagree with what he's doing, and we feel like we can't stop it because he's doing it, but we don't feel like it's for our best interest. In today's passage, James is going to address uh, three groups of people, arrogant believers, self-indulgent unbelievers, and then suffering believers. And I want to take what he says to each group of people and use it to help us think through this relationship between our suffering as followers of Christ, which we're called to, and we'll, we'll talk about that, and God's sovereignty and goodness. I want to take what James says to these people, and I want to lift our eyes using God's word to reveal God's sovereignty and goodness through all of this. And, and here's kind of the, the thought that we need to wrap our minds around this morning, because God is the sovereign lawgiver and judge. We must trade our pride for patience and endure suffering as we trust in his care and control. And so let's look at the first group of uh, people. These are arrogant believers, James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. That, that, that phrase, come now, that, that's a, that's a, uh, uh, it's, it's basically like him saying, all right, listen up. Listen up. You who say, we'll go to this and uh, uh, this such and such a city and do business there. He's addressing um, Christians that are belonging to the wealthy merchant class, okay? Now, um, they're making plans to travel to a city and set up shop. Oftentimes in, in that day in culture, it took at least a year uh, for a business to get up and running and actually make a profit. So it's not necessarily an unreasonable um, business plan. It, it, it sounds like a good business plan, right? They're not going any out of the ordinary. But James says, just a second, hold on. He says, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring, let alone a year from now, let alone the rest of your life. You're like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Does that sound familiar? We've heard this before, right? James 1, 10 and 11, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind, dries up the grass its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes in the same way the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities james is offering perspective here come now listen up let me show you something he says it's presumptuous to make plans without considering the temporary nature of our life and whether or not what you want to do is actually what God wants you to do. 
what, what you ought to do. James offers a better way for them to, to think about their future in verse 15. He says, instead, this is what you should say. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Now, here's what James is not saying. Okay? He didn't tell him, don't say that. He said, say that, but say that if the Lord wills, say that. He's not saying submit your plans to God and make sure uh, uh, that, that God is going to bless those. He's not saying submit your plans to God and ask for God's blessing without considering whether or not your plans need to change. We're not trying to bring God on our side. We're trying to get on God's side and what he wants for us. There's a difference here. He's saying submit your plans to God and make sure they actually line up with God's plans for you. But what are they doing? Verse 16, he says they're boasting in their arrogance. They're making plans while assuming self-sovereignty that I own my life and, and that I'm in charge instead of God's sovereignty. And James says, all such boasting is evil. So then we have to ask the question, is it, is it wrong to make plans? Like, are we, are we disobeying God to actually um, get a calendar out and, you know, put things in there? Is it wrong to want to provide for ourselves and for our families? No, it's not. But as God's children, under God's sovereign care, we need to make sure that our lives are focused on what God would have us do so that we don't get distracted with the wrong things. What distracts us? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's our own evil desires, right? Our own passions and pleasures that are magnetized to the temporary temptations of the world. We boast in things that um, wither away and we pursue the wrong things while assuming that we have control over our own lives. And so James says in, in verse 17, it's sin to know the good and yet not do it. Now, we've probably taken that verse and we've talked about just that verse before with friends and, and talked about the sins of omission versus the sins of commission, right? Like, it's one thing to do evil. It's another thing to not do good, right? God's concerned with both of those in our lives. But James is actually using that to tie into what he's saying there, right? He says, so. Essentially, therefore. And so we need to understand, what is the good that James is referring to here? Well, he told us in verse 15, it's the Lord's will. So we could say it this way. So it is sin to know the Lord's will and yet not do it. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. In his divine sovereignty over our lives, God has made plans for us to carry out. We have a purpose here. And he's given us good works to do. And so, so is it wrong for us then to make plans and investments? I don't think so. I, I don't, James isn't telling them to not do that, right? But it is wrong for us to make plans and investments while we boast arrogantly in our own self confidence and assume that we control our lives. So the primary question that we need to be asking as followers of Christ is this, when it comes to planning out our, our life, what does the eternal God want me to be doing in the limited time that he's given me to live here on this earth? It's good for us to remember that our days are numbered and God's aren't. Mm -hmm. It's good for us to know that God is sovereign 
and we aren't. But then we have to ask, how do we know that God's plans for us will be good? Because in his sovereignty, God planned the sacrificial death of his own son for our good and his glory. Listen to Ephesians 1. I'm going to read 3 through 10. I just want you to hear this. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Does that sound like an evil God to you? For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Does that sound like a God who's not sovereign? To the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. John 6, 37 through 40, this is Jesus talking. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Those are the words of a good and sovereign God. In his sovereignty and goodness, God the Father controlled the events of time and space and history so that at just the right time, his one and only son would be born of a virgin, would escape uh, the murderous hand of, of King Herod, and grow up and live a life of perfect obedience to God while escaping murderous plots of religious leaders. People wanted to kill him his whole life. And then only when the time had been fulfilled, only when Christ had done all that the Father had given him to do, Jesus willingly, sovereignly gave up his own life on the cross and then willingly took it back up again three days later when he rose from the grave. And then he ascended into heaven in, uh, and sat down at the right hand of God, which is the, the position of power and authority, of sovereignty. And together, the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to come and take up residence in the hearts of all whom God has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be adopted as sons and daughters of God so that they will see the Son and believe in him and be raised with him to eternal life on the last day. This is the sovereign plan of a good God. If God is not sovereign, if he's not independently in control of all of that, then none of that is guaranteed. He doesn't control if he doesn't control all of time and space to make that happen when it needed to happen, listen, we have no promise of hope and we're wasting our Sunday morning. We have no reason to believe. We have no reason to submit our lives to his will because not even he can carry out what he wants to do if he's not sovereign. But because God is 
sovereign. All of that is guaranteed. And we have every promise of hope. And we have every reason then to submit our lives to his will because his will will be done. God doesn't just control, he cares. He doesn't just plan, he provides for his children. And so we don't arrogantly boast about tomorrow. We, we don't worry about it either. Jesus tells us that. We seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all our needs will, will Christ will take care of that. Tomorrow will worry about itself. We make plans, but we submit those plans to God's ultimate plan of redemption that began before the foundation of the world and will finish culminate in the coming of Christ, the return of Jesus. It's that plan of redemption that brought us to faith in Christ by God's grace. And it's that plan of redemption that sends us out then as Christ's redeemed possession, eager to do the good work of sharing the gospel of salvation with others and pleading with them to be reconciled to God. This is the ministry of reconciliation we've been given, 2 Corinthians 5. We're compelled by Christ's love to do that. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should be able to do whatever they want. That's not what this translation says. Should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. God's not going to open up his day, daily planner and lay it down and show you everything about your life. But we can be confident that in his sovereign goodness, every day that we've been given has been numbered by the sovereign and good God. And it's for the purpose of redemption and the spreading of the gospel. And so we organize the things in our lives around that good purpose, because if we know that good and we don't do it, we are sinning against the good God who rescued us for that good purpose. Let's look at the second group that James addresses. Chapter 5, verse 1. These are self-indulgent unbelievers. Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields, cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxurious, luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. James says, come now, listen up, pay attention. Now, he's most likely addressing non-Christian landowners. These are the rich people that he, that he mentioned in chapter 2 that oppress believers and drag them into court and blaspheme God. Now remember, this letter is written primarily to Jewish Christians dispersed all throughout um, areas outside of, of Palestine. And so this may be a prophetic warning against unbelievers who, who may never hear it. But it's a warning nonetheless because of what's coming. And it also serves as a warning to any who read or hear this letter and are tempted to live in this way. Remember, James is, is writing this letter to correct the worldliness that's going on in the church that's causing division. Clothing, um, 
or he, he tells them to, to weep and to wail. But not like the believers that he talked about or, or talked to in chapter four when he called them to, to weep and to wail and to mourn in, in an act of repentance, to humble themselves before God. James is warning them here. You're going to weep and wail at what's coming, at the miseries that are coming to you in the form of judgment. And then he condemns them for their self-indulgence at the expense of others. Clothing was a currency back then. It was something that you could trade and barter with. And so clothing and gold and silver and crops, all those things were wealth for whoever owned them, whoever possessed them. And so James says, not only will these things be lost forever because earthly wealth rots away, but these things will actually show up on the day of judgment as evidence against you. Against those who selfishly have hoarded these things and the rotten wealth will feed the fire of judgment that will come upon them and eat their flesh. This is not a really pretty picture, right? But it's a true picture. And it speaks to God's sovereignty and goodness because as a good God who's sovereign, he will judge unrighteousness. We need God to be good if there's unrighteousness in this world injustice because if he's not good he won't do anything about it and if he's not sovereign he can't in verse 3 james says you have stored up treasure in these last days sound familiar matthew 6 19 through 21 jesus said don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the crops and the commodities that these people have stored up for themselves have revealed this corruption of their hearts. They want earthly things more than they want heavenly things. And they've gathered those things at the expense of others. They withheld pay from the workers who mowed their fields. Now back then that daily wage was the livelihood for workers. In fact, so much so that in Deuteronomy, they, they make a law about it. Deuteronomy 24, 15, 14 and 15 says, Do not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether one of your Israelite brothers or one of the resident aliens in a town in your land. You are to pay him his wages each day before the sun sets because he is poor and depends on them. Otherwise, he will cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty. This is what James says is happening here. The rich landowners have withheld the pay from the workers and the cries of the oppressed have reached the ears of the Lord of armies, the judge who's gathering testimony and putting it on record against these wicked people for the day of judgment. What have they done with that pay that they've withheld? They've lived luxuriously, James says. They've indulged themselves. They've, they've fattened their hearts for the day of slaughter. The day of slaughter is an Old Testament imagery of the day of judgment. All the excess that these people have engorged themselves, have enjoyed on the earth, it's fattened them up like a calf that is totally unaware of the disaster that's waiting for it. James offers one more indictment then in verse 6. He says, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. So not only have they oppressed the innocent and dragged them off to court, they've withheld their wages and taken away their means of living, which means they're murdering them, essentially. They're taking away their way of life. 
it's just as bad as, as murdering them. And the poor and the oppressed have no ability to stand up for themselves, but because God is sovereign and good, he will stand up for them on the day of judgment because he's heard their cries. Isn't that comforting to know? That we have a good and sovereign God who listens to us when we cry out to him. And it's with that hope then that James addresses this last group, suffering believers, verse 7. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Therefore, he says in verse 7, tying all of this, what he said before, into this. Because God is sovereign and good, he will judge people righteously according to his will. Therefore, brothers and sisters, because God is judge and he will judge be patient until the Lord's coming. The farmer plants a crop, but he's got to wait for it to grow up out of the ground and produce the precious fruit. In first century agriculture and the, around Palestine and, and the surrounding areas, the early rain was in the fall, and it, and it softened the ground and, and prepared it for uh, the, the planting. And the late rain was in the spring. It was, um, it, was, it was the rain that was needed to sort of give the crops the last boost before harvest. The point here is that there is a, a necessary amount of time that needs to take place for the growing and the maturing of the crop so that it could be harvested. So it is then with the Lord and his people. In his divine sovereignty, the Lord has established a time frame for his plan of redemption to come to fruition. So in the same way that the farmer is patient for the crops to grow, we must also be patient and remember that God is the one who gives the rain as it's needed. James tells his readers to strengthen their hearts because the Lord's coming is near. What was meant to put fear into the hearts of the rich people in verses 1 through 6 is now meant to bring comfort to the brothers and sisters in these verses. You see, the day of judgment is, is a day of fear for anyone who has rejected Christ because on that day, all of their earthly comfort will end and eternal suffering will begin and will never end. The things in which they've put their faith, the riches, the garments, the gold, the silver, the power, the crops, the people that they've abused and oppressed, those things will be of no value at all on the last day. In fact, those things will be used as witnesses against them in the judgment. But for the believer in Christ, the day of judgment is a day of joy for us because on that day, our earthly suffering will end and eternal peace and joy and comfort will begin. And listen, it will never end. And the one in whom we put our faith, Jesus Christ, will stand as a witness, not against us, but for us. He'll be the only thing of value that we have to offer God. And guess what? It'll be exactly what we need. So we must be patient because the day is coming. James also tells them not to complain about one another. It's easy to complain in the midst of suffering, isn't it? I don't know how often we, we, we tend to complain when we have everything we want. 
But when suffering comes, it drains us. It drains us emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually. We get irritable and upset. That leads to this, this double-mindedness that James has been talking about all throughout his letter. It leads us to lose control of our tongues that, that are like a wildfire. And so we envy those who aren't suffering as much as we are, and we criticize those whom we think should be helping us but aren't. We grumble and we complain, but complaining reveals something we need to really understand. It reveals a lack of contentment with God's sovereignty and his care. It's an unwillingness to understand that even when God's providence is bitter, and it is sometimes, read Hebrews 12. The Lord disciplines those he loves. It's an unwillingness to understand that even when God's providence is bitter, he still means it for our good. It's meant to transform us, not to punish us. And that is a perspective we need to have as believers. Because Christ has, our, has already received our judgment. Complaining is sin. It's sin. And it brings judgment. So James says, if Christ has already taken away our judgment, don't complain. There's no use. Where's the good in that? Because your greatest need has already been met. And then just to bolster his point, he finishes with some examples of those who've suffered. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count them as blessed or we count as blessed those who have endured. You've heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. The prophets spoke in the Lord's name. They brought warnings of judgment. They brought exhortations for people to turn from their sins and return to the Lord. And they were oppressed and persecuted because of what they spoke. They were mocked, they were tortured, they were killed. If you read Hebrews uh, 11, some of them were gruesomely killed. And James says, they're an example of suffering and patience. And then he says that those who've endured are counted as blessed. Sound familiar? James chapter one, verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Job is an example of this. James's readers know Job's story very well. They know how he lost all of the people and the possessions in his life in rapid succession. But they know that what happened to Job was not just an attack of Satan. You read Job chapter 1, you'll find out. It's a bitter providence of God. This is something that God has allowed to take place in Job's life. But listen, God preserved Job and his faith. And the outcome that the Lord brought about was to restore Job's fortunes and double his previous possessions. This is not a health and wealth prosperity gospel. This is just the goodness of a sovereign God. He gave Job more sons and daughters, and he blessed the last part of Job's life more than the first. It says that at the end of the book of Job. Why? James tells us. Because the Lord is compassionate and merciful. As believers, as followers of Christ, our confidence and our dependence are on the fact that God is both sovereign and good. 
if he's good, but he's not sovereign, then we have no sure hope that he will be able to fulfill his promises to us no matter how much he wants to. If he's sovereign, but he's not good, then we have no sure hope that he really loves us even though he can do whatever he wants to do. That's a frightening God. But he is sovereign and he is good. He is compassionate and merciful and he's proven these things. He's proven that he is these things by sending his own son to carry out his sovereign will and dying on the cross by suffering and dying on the cross for us for our good and his glory. His sovereignty makes him able to redeem us and his goodness is why he has redeemed us. If we could just dwell on those things about who God is every day, I think we'd be more flexible about our plans. We are destined to suffer in this life. Sorry. That's what he tells us. Jesus promised it. He says, in this world, you will have suffering. You will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. March 8 was our last Sunday together before COVID. And we ended on Mark 8 with the words of Jesus that said, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. You are signing up for a life of suffering to follow Christ. But it's for your good, and it's according to his plan. Because Christ has overcome the world and our sin, we may be destined for suffering in this world, but we need to hold on to this hope because it's true. We are no longer destined for wrath in the world to come. Suffering here, but no wrath. And so we suffer with patience until the Lord's coming. And we spend this life in humble submission to his sovereign will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What is his will? His will is that we participate in his plan of redemption as people who have been redeemed for his own possession, eager to do the good works that he's prepared for us to do. That we organize our lives around his priorities instead of our own. That we deny ourselves, that we take up our cross and we follow him. We actually do what he tells us to do. And that we suffer with patient endurance as we carry out his will and bring the gospel to others, knowing with certainty that the day is coming when the one who is sovereign and good will condemn all sin once and for all, and he will set right every injustice once and for all, and he will end all oppression and pain for every last one of his people once and for all, forever and ever. Amen. So, strengthen your hearts, brothers and sisters. Suffer with endurance, whatever the Lord wills for you to endure, because in his sovereignty he's willed it for your good and his glory and be patient until the lord's coming because even though james said it two thousand years ago and it hasn't happened yet the lord's coming is near it's going to happen 
so we live our lives in humble obedience to Christ until it does. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that you would continue to water our hearts with your grace and your truth and produce the growth in us that we cannot produce ourselves. We thank you that you've given us your spirit to dwell in us that gives us a mind to know you, a heart to love you, and a will to obey you. We thank you that you've given us your church to declare the glories of our good and sovereign God together and remind each other because we quickly forget. We thank you for your word that we have available all the time, that we can go for the refreshing of our souls, to know you and to know your will. We thank you for your son who followed your will, who obeyed and did all that you've commanded him to do so that we can have these things, the riches beyond riches of your glorious grace and spend eternity marveling at what we've been given with the one who's given it to us. We thank you, Lord. Help us to suffer well, patiently, knowing that that day is coming. And come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.